Matthew chapter 10, beginning in verse 34, Jesus says, do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I've come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be those of his own household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who finds his life will lose it. And he who loses his life for my sake will find it. He who receives you receives me. And he who receives me receives him who sent me. He who receives a prophet in the name of a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward. And he who receives a righteous man in the name of a righteous man shall receive a righteous man's reward. And whoever gives a cup Whoever gives one of these little ones only a cup of cold water in the name of a disciple, assuredly I say to you, he shall by no means lose his reward. Over and over and over again, we're going to be asked, invited, if you will, to honor the Lord or to honor ourselves. To lift him up or somehow lift ourselves up. Most sane people don't want to be called divider or hater. But Christ and the gospel are dividers of people. Does that shock you? Warren Wiersbe writes, quote, Jesus is the prince of peace and the gospel is the message of peace. But when people confess Christ... They usually make enemies, unquote. He's exactly right. Jesus requires the priority. First place in the life of the believer. Supreme loyalty. Supreme love in verse 37. Discipleship is not without its costs. It's not without its requirements. People are frightened and even alarmed when a belief or an ideology can drive a wedge into something so fundamental and so powerful as natural affection. And rightly so. We live in a world where God in his wisdom and in his grace and his mercy has given us strong ties to our family, to our children and our grandchildren. We understand and are shocked that an addict would choose her addiction over her family. We're terrified that a mother or a father could abandon or abuse their baby in order to satisfy their cravings. Can anyone or anything claim supreme priority in our lives? Remember the context of these words. That Jesus himself gives. Remember the whole chapter. Jesus has called the apostles to himself. Then he has sent them from himself with a message that he himself has given to them. Empowering them. 
Jesus has outlined the servant's position in verse 24 and 25. Protection in verse 26 through 32. Privileges in verses 33 through 38. A promise in verse 39. And then practical ways to work that out in verses 40 through 42. The disciple must stand up for Jesus in verses 32 and 33. Remember what we've already learned in verse 33. But whoever denies me before men... Him I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Apparently, love, loyalty, and identification with Jesus really matters. We are to stand up for Jesus. And that means that sometimes we have to stand against evil and sin and human rebellion against God. We're willing to sacrifice self for Christ in verses 38 and 39. We see our future in Jesus in verses 40 through 42. The Christian's supreme desire is faithfulness to Jesus. And if the Christian's supreme desire is faithfulness to Jesus, we have to take seriously the, the temptation, the fear of unfaithfulness to Christ. And so Jesus prepares us for the conflict. Look what it says in verse 34. Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. Jesus came to wage war, not against you and not against me and not against each other. But he did come to wage war against evil and against sin and human rebellion. And there was a time in our life where evil and sin and rebellion were a part of our life. And when we abdicated those things and, and identified with Jesus, then we placed ourselves in a different circumstance. This is what the Bible means when it says that you leave the kingdom of darkness and you enter the kingdom of light. You leave the kingdom of death. You enter the kingdom of life. Jesus came to wage war. Jesus did come to bring peace. Now, I want you to think about this. The peace of God. He came to bring peace with God and the peace of God. It's spoken of in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 14 through 17. Jesus came that we as human beings might experience forgiveness and peace and blessing. But the Lord can't offer God's peace. For the person who rejects God and who rejects Christ and who rejects the gospel, who rejects Jesus as the solution for sin. And so there we have it. Which is it? Peace or conflict? Peace or a sword? And the answer has to be both. Peace for those who want it. But a deep division for all of those who say, I don't want to have anything to do with God. And I don't want to have anything to do with Christ. And I don't want to have anything to do with the gospel. And so now we begin to understand that the presence of Jesus always brings division. And the division is personal. 
and social and cultural, our old fallen human nature will sometimes stubbornly refuse to submit to the spirit of God and the gospel of God. The division is social and cultural as people remain in darkness. They stubbornly refuse to leave the kingdom of darkness and embrace the kingdom of light. We speak often of a broken world, but remember each and every time that we speak of the broken world, we also want to remind people that we live in a redeemed world where Jesus has come to love us and to die for us and to rise from the dead. We've all experienced hurt and pain and suffering. And for some of you, peace is not something that characterizes your life right at this very moment. Jesus said, in the world you'll have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. Jesus said, in me you'll have peace. And this becomes important because the peace isn't necessarily found in your husband or your wife, your children or your grandchildren. The government. Or other places where you look for peace. Economic stability. Apart from Christ, there's no lasting peace, no permanent peace. It's always detente. It's always a momentary peace before the storm. We have tribulation because we live in that broken world. We have affliction and sorrow and suffering, which God sometimes allows for, for growth and maturation. That's what Paul writes about in 2 Corinthians 13, 7. And sometimes direct discipline or chastisement becomes a part of our life because God loves us. And he says that you are in fact his children. And remember, he whom the Lord loves, he chastens everyone, a son and a daughter. You mean faith in Christ might mean conflict in the world? Yeah. You mean faith in Christ might mean conflict with my family? These are his words. In verse 35, Jesus says, For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. In the ancient world of the first century, both in the Middle East and many most parts of the world, it wasn't unusual for families to live together. A husband marries a wife. They have children. Those children have children. Their children have children. In the Middle East, it wasn't unusual to, to have a, a dwelling place. And then you attach yet another dwelling place. And yet another dwelling place. Clearly among the Hebrew people, the Bible says, Therefore a man leaves his mother and father and cleaves to the woman. And there were times when people experienced life without mom and dad. But for the most part... It was like our own world a hundred years ago. A hundred years ago, it wasn't unusual for mothers and fathers and grandmothers and grandfathers to all live collectively together. For those of you who remember the Waltons in the 1970s and 80s, you'll remember that there was a time in the world where families lived together. And so in proximity, when people would come to Christ, there would sometimes be deep divides. The phrase... I have come to set a man against his father or a daughter against her mother. That unique word there in verse 35, against, translates an interesting Greek word. 
It's dizadzo. It is a word that means to cut in two or to tear apart. This word only appears right in this very sentence in this verse in the Greek New Testament. It was a word that was often used to describe a devastation that would sometimes happen that would result in a permanent separation. This devastation would sometimes take the form of war or tragedy or crisis. Sometimes serving Christ leads to this awful, painful separation. And now we begin to understand in verse 34, I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. And what does that sword cut? Sometimes people and and, and relationships that are the most valuable and vulnerable. Jesus is making the statement, there's no way to avoid conflict. The wounds are going to be inevitable. In verse 36, it says, and a man's enemies will be those of his own household. So that when a person comes to Christ, when they leave the kingdom of darkness and they come into the kingdom of light, the Christian is never, ever given permission to be a source of harm or injury. This isn't an invitation for Christians to hurt their family. But rather, that their commitment to Christ and their love and their loyalty to Christ could be seen as a threat to the cohesion and the stability of the family. William MacDonald writes very carefully but appropriately. He says, quote, so a choice must be made between Christ and family. No ties of nature can be allowed to deflect a disciple from utter allegiance to the Lord. The Savior must take precedence over father, mother, son, or daughter. One of the costs of discipleship is to experience tension, strife, alienation from one's own family. This hostility is often more bitter than is encountered in other areas of life, unquote. And he's exactly right. It's one thing for a government to persecute you. Or a village to incarcerate you. And it's an entirely whole nother thing for your family to be so broken and so deeply divided. But there is a way to avoid the conflict. And you might ask, how? There's only one way to walk around unscathed. Unharmed. Unaffected. It's to agree with everything they say. If they say, God isn't important, you have to say, God isn't important. If they say, Christ isn't important, you say, Christ isn't important. The Bible doesn't matter and the gospel doesn't matter. His love and his grace and his mercy doesn't matter. Worship and participation in the things of God and Christ don't matter. If you agree with everything that they say, guess what? You won't have a single problem. But the moment that you say, Jesus is real and he came into my life and he loves me and he, he forgave me and he saved me. Then you might be 
hurting and in a world of trouble. You know, in the first century, they understood what was at risk and, and they understood the stakes. And they took denying Christ very seriously. Remember in verse 33, but whoever denies me before men, him I will also de deny before my father who is in heaven. Pliny, who was the governor of Bithynia, which is modern uh, northern Asia Minor, or what's now part of Turkey, he wrote to Trajan the emperor sometime after 128 AD, but before 134 AD, he wrote about the Christians who were in the province. Because the Christians in the province were going to be required to take a loyalty oath to Trajan, to the Roman emperor. Every single Roman citizen had freedom of religion. Every Roman could worship any god they wanted to or no god whatsoever. The issue wasn't an issue of religious freedom. It was an issue of political stability and coherence. And so the emperor said that you would have to pinch incense to the emperor, declare that he was your number one priority, and the Christians wouldn't do it. And Pliny tried arresting them and tried fining them and tried imprisoning them and tried beating them and torturing them and even executing some of them to get them to renounce that loyalty of Jesus. And in trying to excuse himself to their absolute reluctance to do so, Pliny wrote, and I'm quoting him, quote, none of these acts, those who are really Christians can be compelled to do, unquote. And the pagan governor knew firsthand of the Christian commitment. And he said, I can't make them do it. But it's interesting to me how easy it is to cave and collapse in a culture that doesn't just simply request, but it plays on those deep, natural, appropriate affections. Listen to what Jesus says in verse 37 about the priority and the proof of love. He says in verse 37, he who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Pay close attention to that expression. Worthy of me. It will occur twice here in this verse and once again. What do you suppose he means by worthy of me? Is he talking about salvation? I suspect that he isn't talking about salvation. And let me tell you what I mean by that. Because you're saved by grace through faith and that not of yourselves. You don't have to be worthy to experience God's grace and mercy and love. None of you are worthy. I am not worthy. Which of you is worthy of the sacrifice of Jesus? Which of you is worthy of the grace of God? Which of us is worthy of salvation? None of us. What is he talking about? I think that he's talking about the powerful priority of discipleship. And he's boldly inviting both his followers to love him above family and friends. Those of you who are smart, and most of you are, 
Imagine if you said to a mother, any mother, I want you to choose between your children and her husband. Or choose between her children and her in-laws. Or is that an appropriate choice to ask a mother to make? Most of us know it's harsh and it seems cruel. So what exactly is Jesus doing? And is it even appropriate? Jesus is inviting his followers to put him first. Why? We've already discovered that Jesus is making some amazing claims about himself and about the gospel. Remember, he called them to himself with a message from himself, empowering them to go out to do the work. Jesus is going to make the outrageous claim that he comes from God with a message from God with benefits that only God can provide. Forgiveness and hope, cleansing and mercy and eternal life. Jesus makes the claim that every family and all families exists because he exists. All of reality exists because he exists. And note what Jesus is not saying. Jesus is not asking you not to love your mother and father. He's not asking you to hate your children. Jesus boldly invites them to place him first. He demands supreme love. And that's what it means more than me. Believers absolutely must love their families. Love their children but not more than they love their Lord. And there are two terrible things that happen when our affection for our children exceeds our affection for God. We become child-centered homes rather than Christ-centered homes. And every home will make that choice. Are we going to be a Christ-centered home or are we going to be a child-centered home? Are we going to be a husband-centered home or are we going to be a Christ-centered home? Are we going to be a wife-centered home or are we going to be a Christ-centered home? What kind of a home are we ever going to have? And part of the point that comes from the passage is that no family can achieve God's goals for that family with misplaced priorities. Apart from God. Apart from Christ. There's always going to be a lack of spiritual growth. There's always going to be a lack of maturation. There will always be a lack of strength and conviction and confidence and commitment and purpose and meaning and significance if you opt to make the child first or the husband first or the wife first. Again, no one, no one, no one is suggesting even for a moment that you not love your wife and your husband, that you love your children and grandchildren. That's not what he's saying. He's simply reminding us about the dangers of misplaced priorities. And some people, by the way, will choose their family. The opposition is strong. The division deep. The sacrifice too great, the mental, the emotional, the financial strain will overwhelm certain people as these demands seem to be too great. And some people will shake their fist at God and say, how dare you make me choose between you and my husband, my wife, and my children. But there's a reason why he's doing this. It isn't because he hates you or hates them. 
but the most dynamic, the most energetic, the most God-honoring resource that you can have is your commitment to Christ. By the way, commitment to Christ is the best insurance of fidelity in marriage. Propriety and security. God commands us to honor our mom and our dad. The issue is not to just simply say, well, I'm not going to honor my mother and father. That's not the point. It's misplaced priorities. We're not to place family before worship of God or affection for God. No one is saying that we should lack affection for family. No one is suggesting that sacrifices aren't made in order to ensure the health and well-being of our family. It's simply that affection and sacrifice begins with the Lord. And it's in that context that he says in verse 38, and he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. Note again, loves father and mother more than me, not worthy of me. Loves son and daughter more than me, not worthy of me. Refuses to take up cross and follow after me, not worthy of me. What in the world does that mean? How do we explain it? What does it mean? And we're going to talk a little bit about it, but before we do, I'm going to suggest to you that the priority of love and the priority of loyalty is evidenced by sacrifice. You know, every mother who has a child knows about sacrifice. Every mother knows that God has hardwired the mother to care for and protect the child. Every single father should be hardwired to protect his wife and to protect his children. Can family members rob Christ of his rightful place? Which is first place? The answer is yes. But there is one more person who vies for our attention. It isn't just simply our family. The other person who craves attention is our self. And according to the Bible, we love ourselves, contrary to the popular, country, popular culture, which says, well, you know what? The real problem is you don't have enough self-esteem and you don't love yourself. The Bible says exactly the opposite, that, that the truth is we really do love ourselves. And it is reflected in the unhealthy preoccupation that we have with satisfying ourselves and unwillingness to sacrifice ourselves. We love our lives. But Jesus warns about loving your life apart from him. And on the issue of worthiness, who decides? Is it me making the decision about my worthiness or you making the decision about my worthiness? No, it's Jesus. Apparently, Jesus is the one who has the final say in what constitutes worthy behavior. Jesus is the one who decides whether the affection and the loyalty is 
appropriately placed or misplaced. Jesus is the one who decides who is worthy and who is not worthy and who is the one worthy and who is the one not worthy. And remember what that word means. It means worthness, honor, respect, esteem, privilege, distinction, glory. And the Lord will use the illustration of the cross. And I think it's interesting that he says, and he who does not take his cross, it's personal and it's singular. Jesus isn't speaking of a trial. Here, a cross doesn't mean a difficult husband or a wayward wife or, or problematic children. It doesn't mean setbacks or difficulties or even temptations. Here, Jesus is speaking of a personal cross in that culture and at that time. If you woke up on any given morning and you took up your cross, guess where you were going? Before the day was out, you would be hanging on that cross. And before the day was concluded, you would either be dead on that cross or dying on that cross. Here, Jesus means the instrument of your own execution in order to go to the place of execution. And of course, we die to self daily. We have to count ourselves dead to sin in order to follow Christ. Later, Jesus will say in Matthew 16, 24, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. In Luke 16, 46, in 14, 26, he'll say, if any man come to me and hate not his father and mother, his wife, children, brethren, sisters, yea, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Is Jesus commanding you to hate your mom, your dad, your brother, your sister? No, he's not asking you to hate them because otherwise honor your mother and your father becomes a nonsensical statement. So what is he saying? He must be saying that your love, your loyalty, your affection, and its supremacy to Christ is so great that it makes every other love, every loyalty seem pale by comparison. The cross is the only ladder high enough to be able to get us to reach the threshold of heaven. And, and what is this reward that he's talking about? It's the person is counted worthy. So what does it mean to take up your cross and follow Christ? It means to accept the instrument of your own death. It means to accept that there are two things in the world that matter. What you want and what Christ wants. And you'll choose what he wants. Your ambition, your desire, your pleasure, your goals, your dreams, your future, it disappears. A person who's picked up their cross has no vacation plan. The person who's picked up their cross has no retirement plan. The person who's picked up their cross has no business goals. There's only one agenda and there's only one destination and there's only one outcome. And some people might hear these words that I'm speaking. 
and say, well, how is Christians and Christianity different from some sort of death cult? And the right answer is, because we're the only group of people in the whole wide world who are harmless. We're we're the only ones who point people to Jesus and God and say, it is Christ who offers a permanent solution to the problem of sin. It is Jesus who offers a permanent solution to peace and eternal life and everlasting hope. And I'm going to suggest to you, it may take a crucified church to take a crucified Christ before the eyes of a world that doesn't know anything about sacrifice or selflessness. Not all Christians will be required to lay down their lives for the sake of the gospel or for the sake of the Lord. But we're all called to so highly esteem Jesus that our lives don't matter. And this in public contrast to a world. Remember that in the popular culture, we're talking about which lives matter. Is it black lives that matter or white lives that matter? Police officer lives that matter? Do all lives matter? And Jesus invites you to think about it in a fresh but difficult way that in light of Christ, the only life that matters is the life that he's given to us. And now we begin to understand what Paul meant when he wrote in Galatians chapter 2 verse 20, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave his life for me. Any conversation about my life has no value or significance apart from what Jesus has done. Does the disciple face difficulty and danger? Yes. But there's privilege and reward in verses 39 through 42. Look what Jesus does as he hints at the privileges and rewards. In verse 39 he says, He who finds his life will lose it. And he who loses his life for my sake will find it. This is one of those great paradoxes that Jesus talks about frequently in the New Testament. Remember what we learn in the New Testament that the way up is the way down. The way to being elevated is to voluntarily embrace humility. And the way to find meaning, purpose, and significance for your life is to discover the amazing truth of the life that God gives you. There's a great reward for loving Jesus supremely. And what is that reward? First and foremost, we're counted worthy or unworthy. 
It seems to me that part of the meaning must be the kind of life that we live or the kind of life that we refuse to live. The Lord has placed in the human being strong instincts for survival and for self-preservation. We are wired to preserve our life and protect our life. We are wired to preserve the life of our children and grandchildren and to watch out for them. We're wired to avoid pain and seek pleasure. So how in the world can a person bypass those strong instincts in order to live a life of personal commitment and sacrifice? We all know about a person who runs from a burning building or who runs away when the shots are fired. When I was at Columbine and when I was at Ground Zero, when the shots were fired, you saw two kinds of people. People running away from the shots and people running towards the building. When the Twin Towers collapsed into a pile of rubble, you saw thousands of people running for their lives and you saw a few brave people marching resolutely towards the smoke and the debris. What would cause a person to run towards the danger instead of away from it? It's usually training and commitment. There are people who have already made the choice that they will sacrifice their life for you. Someone once said to me, there are three things that I would die for. The Lord, my family, and my country. But in order to make that statement, you had to have already made a commitment in your mind. What is it that will cause a woman who's five foot two with a broomstick to stand against an eight foot grizzly bear? What would create within a mother's heart an overwhelming sense of sacrifice in order to protect her child? Her love for her child has to outweigh her fear of the bear. And we admire people who are willing to give up their lives for their family, for their country. There's a story of a lady who, in ancient times, they were crossing a railroad track in order to go to a picnic, and she caught her foot in the wedge of the track and she couldn't release her foot no matter how she tried and the train started coming and she started screaming and her husband looked at her in paralyzed fear and then he made the choice. He said, Mary, I'm not going to leave you. And, and as the train came, he t- put her face away from the train and he said, look at me, look at me, I'm not going to leave you. Jesus has made that choice. The greatest life is the life spent in dedication to Jesus. And so that's part of the contrast that's being made. He's inviting you to ask a question. Maybe one of the most important questions that could ever that you could ever make. What constitutes a life well lived? And what constitutes a wasted life? 
And Jesus is inviting the disciples to make that choice and make that decision. Is it the life spent glorifying Jesus or is it the life spent gratifying yourself? The person who loses their life in devotion to Christ will find it. And the person who remains convinced that the only life worth living is the life that's dedicated to making sure I'm okay to making sure that the people that I love are okay, to making sure that the country that I live in is okay, and Jesus invites you to go beyond that. Our love for Christ has to be greater than our instinct for self-preservation. I live to die I die to live, the more I die, the more I live. That could have been Paul's motto. I live to die, I die to live. The way to life is the way to death. No wonder in verse 40 it says, he who receives you receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. Some will hear the message and receive the message. And here's what Jesus is saying. He who receives you receives me. In what way? Remember, he called them to himself and he sent them from himself with a message from himself. And this is why Jesus will later on at the time of the great judgment, he'll say to the person who says, Hey, when did we see you naked and we not give you clothes? When did we see you thirsty and we not give you a drink? When did we see you hungry and we not give you something to eat? And he goes, when you did it to the least of these, you did it to me. So Jesus makes the point, I sent you and the Father has sent me. The Father has sent the Son with a message of hope, with grace, of mercy, forgiveness, and revelation. You know, in a modern country, when a government sends an ambassador to a foreign country, receiving the ambassador is the same as receiving the government. When we established a base in Libya and we established an embassy and we sent an ambassador to that place, when the place gets overwhelmed and when they kill our ambassador, they are sending a message to the president and to the Congress, but also to the people of the United States. They're saying, we don't want you here. And this is exactly what happened in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The father sends the son to a world and that world first rejects him and then incarcerates him and then tortures him and then places him on a piece of wood and suspends him between heaven and earth and they kill him. Imagine if the father said, whatever you want to do to me, do to him. And now Jesus says, what they did to me, they'll do to you. And so, if you treat the ambassador with respect, courtesy, dignity, hospitality, generosity, 
then you're saying something about yourself. And this is what it means in verse 41. He who receives a prophet in the name of a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward. And he who receives a righteous man in the name of a righteous man shall receive a righteous man's reward. Well, what does this mean? Following Jesus is not without privilege or reward. There are rewards. Because the same God who sent Jesus, Jesus is going to be brought back to life and Jesus is going to live forever. You see, the moment that you make the decision where you go, I'll follow you. I will take up the instrument of my death. I'm going to go where you asked me to go. And I'm going to go to the place where you asked me to go, knowing that wherever you take me, you're going to bring me back to life. And I'm going to be with you forever. Jesus has outlined the conditions of discipleship, priority and proof of love in verses 37 and 38. And now he's going to speak of the benefits or the compensation. We're honored. By the Son's presence and the Father's presence, we fully gain our lives in verse 39. We're given great rewards in verses 40 through 42. And so what does it mean to receive a prophet in the name of a prophet? A.T. Pearson writes these helpful words. He says, quote, The Jews regarded the reward of the prophet as the greatest because while kings bore the rule in the name of the Lord, priests ministered in the name of the Lord, the prophet came from the Lord and he instructed both priest and king. Christ says that if you do more than receive a prophet in the capacity of a prophet, the same reward that is given to the prophet will be given to you if you help the prophet along. Think of all that... That, that if you are inclined to criticize the speaker, if you help him speak for God and encourage him, you'll get part of the reward. It is, gr- it is a great thing to help a man who's seeking to do what's good. You should not regard his dress, his attitude, his manner, his voice, but you should look beyond those things and say, is this message of God for me? Is this man a prophet of God for my soul? If he is, receive him and magnify his word and work. Get part of the reward, unquote. And so here's part of the point. What is the reward? The moment that you give the message of God to a person who's either never heard that, but is willing to receive it, what kind of reward is there for the person who says, I'm going to turn from my sin and I'm going to accept Jesus as my Lord and my Savior. I'm going to get healed and I'm going to get saved. The Bible says, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. He was obedient even to the death on a cross. Because Jesus was able to see beyond the pain and the circumstance into your very real life. And so what is the reward? Eternal life? Well, yeah, but more. You see, the the reward of of a righteous man or the reward of a prophet is the prophet says, you can't give me anything that God hasn't already given me. God has given me my reward. My reward is to be faithful to him and obedient to him and submit to him. And this is why Jesus could say in verse 42, and whoever gives one of these little ones only a cup of cold water. Note what it says, not in his name, but in the name of a disciple. He doesn't even say in the name of Jesus or in the name of the father or in the name of the son. He says in the name of the disciple. Can you imagine 
when my mother were alive, she would say, hey, if anybody in your church happens to be in Hesperia, California, have them knock on the door. And if they go, I'm from Gino's church, I'll give them a cup of coffee or a cup of tea. Just simply because you go to the church. But if you're a guy knocking on the door, selling them encyclopedias, she might just slam the door in your face. When you come in the name of a person with a message from that person, and you say to them, hey, I have a message from your son or your daughter. I have a, a message from your grandchild. I have a message from someone that you love and care about. They just wanted to let you know that they're fine and, and that everything's fine. Do you appreciate messages about the people that you care about? Especially when you don't know what's going on. Every kindness, here's the point, every kindness shown to the follower of Jesus is seen by God. That's the big picture. Every kindness shown to the followers of Jesus is seen by God. And the kindness could be as simple as a smile or a handshake or a hug or a hospital visit or a laugh or a cry or a gas money, or a place to stay, or food to eat. The kindnesses then pile one on top of the other and are seen by God. Will the follower of Christ experience pain and suffering and rejection and persecution and opposition and trial and imprisonment and even death? The answer is yes, but in the end, the rewards far outweigh the difficulties that we will face. We're ambassadors of a great king. We're ambassadors with a great message. We're ambassadors with great privileges. And so when you become a Christian, you weigh every desire, every relationship, in light of your commitment to Christ. You know, John Bunyan was told to quit preaching or go to prison he knew that if he was thrown into jail, his wife and his children would be left destitute. They had little to wear and little to eat, even when he was free. Incarceration meant certain poverty. Yet Bunyan knew he must preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, and he was thrown into prison, and he wrote these words, quote, The parting with my wife and poor children hath often been to me in the place as the pulling of the flesh from my bones, and that not only because I am somewhat too fond of these great mercies, but also because I would have often brought to mind the hardships, miseries, and wants that my poor family was like to meet with should I be taken from them, especially my poor blind child who lay near to my heart that all that I have besides, oh, the thought of the hardship, I thought my blind one might go under, would break my heart to pieces. But yet recalling myself, thought I, I must venture all with God, though it goeth to the quick to leave you. Oh, I saw in this condition, I was a man who was pulling down his house upon the head of his wife and his children, yet I thought, I must do it. I must do this. 
And from that prison cell, he wrote Pilgrim's Progress. He wrote Pilgrim's Progress, which other than the English Bible is the most translated book and read book in all of the world. Almost every pilgrim who came over on the Mayflower brought with them a copy of Pilgrim's Progress and read it to their children. And the book became a source of benefit and blessing as the gospel was preached, not only in his generation, but by every single person who has ever picked up the book and benefited from it. The sacrifice that you make isn't always seen by yourself. The question isn't whether or not you're going to have a life. It's what kind of a life will you have? We begin to understand something. Faithfulness requires sacrifice. We stand up for Jesus. We're willing to sacrifice family for Jesus. Sacrifice self for Jesus. Because we see our family and ourself with Jesus in the future that he's provided. The truest end of life is to know the life that will never end. The truest end of life is to know the life that will never end. That's what could cause a John Bunyan to say, if this is what it takes, this is what I'll do. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would help us think these things through. Lord, we know that in order to challenge natural affection at its most fundamental level, we have to ask and answer the question, is there a supreme love? Is there a supreme desire? Is there a supreme loyalty which would cause me to live a life that can only be had by Jesus. And now we begin to understand that everyone who loses their life gains it. And whoever loses our life for Jesus' sake will have the kind of life that was meant to last forever. Heavenly Father, again we pray that you would awaken in our heart, that you would stir in our heart what it means to have a transcendent commitment to faithfulness. And that, Lord, we would fear faithlessness more than anything. We commit this to you. We entrust our hearts to you, our families to you, our future to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.